Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Time is just made no sense I'd mentioned it before that he died during the World Cup yeah. 2014 the World Cup but I was thinking it's going to complain that the World Cup will be back on and that'll be four years later but how can it be four years after this mm. how can how can anything yeah. kind of happen mm. and sure enough the World Cup rolled around last year and it was as worse as any of those first Welcome to Grief Encounters with me Sasha Hamrog and I'm Venetia Quick We're a weekly podcast that looks at an issue that affects us all and yet remains so difficult to talk about. We'll be chatting to guests from all walks of life on the subject of death and all that comes with it. Our main aim is to motivate, comfort and create a modern space for people to share their own experiences. Could you think of someone that could benefit in listening? Tell them about Grief Encounters out every single Tuesday. We've talked a little bit um, on the podcast about the weird dynamic of losing a sibling Mm. because they say the parents shouldn't outlive their children. Mm. You know the heartbreak of losing a parent. I know the heartbreak of losing a spouse. But losing a sibling is can be so difficult because such a special relationship. It's such a special relationship for a lot of people. I know it can be a tough relationship too. Let's just be honest about that. But there's also I think it's some sort of survivor's guilt that they're still alive and their sibling isn't. And, you know, we've often sort of wondered about how that changes maybe the dynamic with your parents Mm -hmm. as well, that you're the one that's still here and the other one isn't. Uh, Andy Gaffney came in and chatted with us about his brother, Raymond, who he lost um, five years ago in June from leukaemia. And he spoke a lot about their relationship. Mm. I mean, their similarities, but obviously quite a lot of differences. Yeah. Um, Raymond's love of Japan. Yeah. But he also spoke about how he dealt with his grief. And I mean, I think for a lot of people, when somebody close to them dies, they look for a crutch Mm. and they look for something to lean on. And for a lot of people, it's booze and for Andy that seemed to be the case absolutely I think Andy's honesty and he's a great storyteller I think being able to tell us all about his brother and being able to really imagine Raymond I felt like I'd you know I'd never seen a photograph of Raymond and after talking to him I felt like I could almost imagine him he really speaks beautifully about his brother but he also speaks honestly about their relationship he speaks honestly about Raymond and I think that's refreshing because it can be hard sometimes to know how to remember someone you loved if you remember them if you glorify them or if you remember them honestly that can be a tough one for for people as you said who are 
survivors and people who have lived on. I also just think when he talked about the beauty of Raymond moving to Tokyo and finding his place, mm. um, you know, you could almost imagine someone who finally lands somewhere and it all starts to make sense and how great that he got to do that because his life was cut so short. So the fact that he got to experience that kind of happiness and acceptance of finding a place that really meant something to him. I think also what we learned a lot from Andy is exactly what you talked about earlier, Venetia, which is that relationship with your parents when you're taking care of them mm. going, as they're going through a bereavement and that responsibility to make sure they're OK. And then what happens with your grief when you're yeah. kind of get shoved to the side? Yeah, yeah. It does. Um, so it's a really, um, it's a a really honest, honest talk. Um, yeah, here it is. A chronic illness can bring with it many devastating lows, but also moments of hope and relief. This week's guest saw his brother faced with all of these emotions as he battled with a rare form of leukemia, which eventually led to his death. Andy, tell us a little bit about Raymond. Uh, Raymond was incredibly odd. <laughs> Great start. I love yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. He was that. We like odd. Yeah, we do. We love odd. He was, and coming from an odd family, mm. where I was very much the nerdy type as well. But he was uber alpha, but just kind of like very, very clever. Never really kind of found his way apart from with the things that he did really, mm. really, really love. Mm. Um, so he was very, very much, I wouldn't say like an outcast, but he just took him a long time to find his groove. Yeah. Like we loved, me and him loved Star Wars and Star Trek and would argue about the correct dimensions of uh, of the <laughs> what this ship would do if this yeah. was doing that I'm aware of that argument <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was only he kind of he, he really kind of struggled to find his way up until he started to look at Japanese culture and he realised okay I really like this I really like the animation I mm. like the kind of film he's like having mates and all this stuff and visited for a month and then took jobs there for three months and then eventually went why am I not over here yeah. so he got his chance when he moved to Tokyo and he moved to Japan and that's where he fit in isn't it mad that you can live in one country for so long I mean you see it all the time now and people move to another country and it's just like aha it's the penny drop yeah. Yeah. moment that actually I should have been living here all my life yeah and I don't know what it is about that country itself but him and his kind of mates and he had the exact kind of type of mates lovely guys but they just you know when we went over to visit him on Christmas and you just realised oh this is perfect for you you just fit in kind of here like there's city streets dedicated to video games mm. and that kind of culture and I do think people find themselves there and people are happy and he was very 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 happy there and was that alienating in terms of your relationship because he was so into something so niche or once he was happy and he found his thing was it easier to communicate it was a lot easier because he had a, a passion then because like I said he did have all these kind of passions and he was very very clever you know he got his degree in civil engineering and then but still wasn't happy with that and he wanted to keep going on but he'd be a difficult enough guy a lot of the time and we had very, very different personalities. I was very, very chatty, but uh, stupid. Well, he was very clever, but very, like, very kind of introverted. And, you know, some of the nastier sides of introvert would kind of come out of that. So that all kind of, 
change a little bit once he did go to Japan. Now we were never kind of texting each other. I remember I take you know we were texting over, you know, did you see this trailer? Did you see that trailer? But he became a lot easier once he found that bit was missed from his personality. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. And what about the distance? I mean, the distance is also a huge thing when you're not seeing somebody every day. I know, like social media and phones, whatever. But like. When you don't see somebody every day, did you find that absence made the heart grow fonder or slightly out of sight, out of mind? I would say very much absence was making the heart grow fonder, especially with my mm. parents, because they liked saying, oh, he's a, a bank. He became, he started working in a bank. He's like, yeah. oh, he's a, he's he's a, a banker. banker in Tokyo. Yeah, yeah, he's a banker in Tokyo. <laughs> and that all, yeah, that all, and they're like, how's Andy? Uh, no, he's a banker in Tokyo. Yeah, 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 don't, yeah, don't mind yeah, about yeah, Andy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So it very much did become, like you said, the heart, uh, yeah. absolutely the heart go fonder because he he had, like I said, he had a thing. He, had, he suddenly had an identity. Kind of yeah. had he had that mm. kind of life. He was so much happier that the parents became happier. Now they were devastated. Of course, when he left, especially yeah. my father. My mother is lovely, lovely, lovely woman, uh, but would very much keep her feelings on the inside while. Ray would be like me crying at most movies and stuff like that so he took that very kind of hard that he's leaving but then because he's seen that he, I don't think he was happy for a long long time here so when he's seen that he was happy over there it just became so much mm. better and it fit and when he'd come back the goodbyes weren't as bad yeah. because he was going back to something that sure look you're, you're happy mm. over there When did you first kind of start to find out that something wasn't right in terms of him getting sick it was a night my grandmother died and it was on my mother's side so she had a big big family and we were in the Blackrock hospice which mm. is strange because that's going to come in um, mm. so we were in the Blackrock hospice in June and this mm. wasn't a big kind of shock this was a thing kind yeah. of that was coming and Raymond was in Tokyo at, at this point and I had heard that he was not feeling well at the moment, that something wasn't right. And when my father phoned him to say, he knew it was coming that day, mm-hmm. but when he phoned him to say, look, this has just happened, mm-hmm. him and my mother talked for about an hour on the phone. It was decided that don't worry about the funeral. Don't oh, come don't on. worry, come back, because he said he was on right. He thought it might have been mm-hmm. gout or something, mm-hmm. um, which Raymond had the figure of a kind of a, you know, I look like a Tesco value Rowan and Keating, but he looks like an Aldi Richard Ashcroft. Yeah. He was super thin. So I was like, I don't know how, because gout was in the family. Mm. So he thought maybe it was that. And that's what kind of Japanese doctors were looking into. So that was just going on during the kind of the funeral. And that became the background because yeah. you were everything became about my grandmother. Then it was that they don't know what this is. So my father is a very very prepared man he is just ultra business like mm. his whole thing is no tomorrow come on come on come on that's just the way he is so he was like look come on over we'll just get you the full MOT I know you don't want it but just come back two weeks we'll get you completely looked at or whatever and I think I don't know so I don't want to do a kind of a slight but I think Japanese hospitals are quite regimented that there's not many visitors that it is silence that it, and it was clearly a language gap mm. like there was like a six page document of just lists of things that they think it, it could be. So he agreed. Which is amazing, sorry to interrupt, mm. but it's amazing because you'd sort of go in your head 
that oh well the, the healthcare over there would be so much better yeah. than here because technically they're so far advanced mm. and and I so think it's it, sort of bizarre that uh, they wouldn't maybe diagnose earlier straight yeah. away and I I think that they were on the right path mm. but it was so unusual what was coming down the track and they probably were sniffing around the right things but there was a huge communication problem Problem. there Mm. was I think Raymond was getting scared at this point as Mm. well because he was on his own in terms of family so you know oftentimes like obviously your family acts as your advocate so they're the ones translating the information and I mean translating even if they're speaking in your language Mm. you know because the way that medical speak is very difficult to understand as is even if it is your own language but oftentimes there's somebody talking to the doctor in the hall and then coming into you and then relaying the information if he was on his own that's really hard yeah, and something that we learn, and I will advise it to anyone now about hospitals is, no matter how prepared you are, no matter how great the hospital is, is one thing you really, really need is you need someone banging the table yeah, for you. You, you do. You, it's hard to do it alone, and you need someone to kind of go, mm. I'm going to go out and find out that information mm. for you. And that's simply because everything is so, so busy, and mm. there's just so much. But I do think everyone needs a cheerleader to kind of yeah. go out and start banging tables and go, yeah. look, I'm not being a... Not encouraging no, everyone to be but, a prat or anything, no, but just kind of like someone to f- mm. just find stuff out. Yeah. And he didn't have that. Yeah. So he was very much feeling mm. alone. He came back and we picked him up from the airport and he looked absolutely fine. Mm. He was very much, and we and him had a chat that night. And my parents were very kind of protective of the two of us. And in a very much kind of like, oh, we'd love you to be doing this. We'd mm. love you to be doing that. He was kind of worried that his chance now had gone that he'd kind of escaped, he'd kind of gone out to Tokyo, yeah, yeah, everything yeah, yeah. was great. And now he'd be pulled back, back yeah. in. Yeah, the, yeah. the mammy's eyes be fluttering and all this stuff, saying yeah. like, well, look, could you not... Now you're back. <laughs> yeah, could you not yeah. try this out yeah. here? So he was kind of nervous about that, so he was very much like a, look, mm. I am... Um, in and out. Yeah. yeah, come on, come on, come on. And so we were in Vincent's, and they did some tests, and something turned up in the blood test quite quickly, something unusual mm. they picked up. And it turned out that because it was so unusual that it flared up a few people going like, oh, I know what this Yeah, I know what this is. Mm. And we were sitting around and uh, the specialist came in and said, OK, look, there's something in the bone marrow here. There's something mm. in the blood here. We're looking at a type of leukemia. And um, when you hear that word. Mm. Oh, yeah. We'd kind of heard rumblings beforehand that there was something in like the white blood cells weren't behaving themselves. And I remember from an episode of Scrubs, that was the thing. And yeah. I kind of thought to myself, mm. oh, that didn't, that didn't yeah. end well in that episode. So I was kind of nervous, but I didn't want to say anything to the parents or whatever, especially based on a Zach Braff comedy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm but, sure lots of people have gathered some <laughs> medical information. Yeah. So the four of us were standing there and we were shocked. But your man was so cool. He was like, don't worry. If you're going to get leukemia, this is the leukemia you want. Mm. And... He's like, how do you mean? He said, look, this is a rare type of leukemia. He said there maybe had been 20 people having it at the moment and maybe 40 people he'd seen in his Mm. career who had it in Ireland. And what made it so convenient to get was that they had accidentally discovered a cure for it. There was a tablet that was meant for another type of leukemia that did the job with this one. It was very much you take a tablet Mm. and you feel it Mm. in a few weeks. And it didn't even take that they said look we've the tablets downstairs right now oh, they wow. put them on it 
and the mood just yeah because but it's sort of that changes everything yeah. like the minute you hear the word cancer and it's, mm. it's or leukemia or whatever it is it's said to you you cannot help but your mind automatically goes the end. <gasps> you know so then you must have had that dip and then this huge surge of hope like I, relief and hope and yeah and I think that's something that over the next year or so that's the thing was that there's so many ups and downs there's mm. so many that you're just battered it's like a tidal wave constantly yeah. hitting a beach that you were just kind of destroyed but we were sitting down in the cafe me and my mother and this is like maybe a few days after taking the tablets and suddenly Raymond came down and he was having a cup of tea with us and mm. stuff and you didn't want to jinx anything yeah but clearly this had started working uh. and he was there for I'd say under a month and he just was really really improving Mm. just to the point where he's like oh look you're now going to become an outpatient Mm -hmm. and he was coming in every week to get his bloods and the bloods were spectacular Mm. they brought down the dosage of the tablets everything was the way you wanted it to go everything was kind of and we got very cocky yeah we really (laughs) got cocky about it I was kind of slagging him going would you not have even made beaten yeah, yeah. A, bit, <laughs> a bit more dramatic. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to hear about this now going yeah, on yeah. when uh, he had cancer. <laughs> he knocked it out in a week. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for a safe haven to express how you feel, share articles, photos, and memories of your loved ones, join the Grief Encounters Facebook group, a place for support, compassion and empathy for those grieving 
it became this kind of weekly ritual that him and my father would go up to the specialist, take the bloods, mm. and they go get a carvery on the way yeah, back yeah. and stuff. And he moved back into the, the house with the parents and stuff. But it got to the point where I think it was about two months in and especially was like, what are you doing here? It's mm. like, you don't want to be here. You want to go home. Mm. Home is Tokyo. Mm. And the father was very much like, oh, no, no, no. Come on now. Come on mm. now. And especially was like, look, you got lucky here. Mm. This mm. could have gone a different way. Go on. Live your life. Yeah. You've mm. got, I'm going to give you a prescription. You can fill your case with these mm. if you want. Mm. Go on home. And he did. And... I remember that airport was a breeze mm. that he was like, just go on, go on. We're like, yeah. I'm going to go to the shop. Yeah. You go on back to Tokyo really because yeah, see after. This, this is it now. This yeah. is, don't come back if you yeah. don't want it. Because we did start feeling like, okay, yeah, this is, mm. we That got. must have been very frustrating for him though as well when he was on the treatment, just itching to, to get home. Yeah. You know, I think for a lot of people, even like moving back with their parents can mm. be challenging even like if you're doing it to try and buy a house or it's Christmas or whatever and it's to then do that and go through all the ups and downs that you feel yourself when you're going through treatment and that's the weird thing though but there was at this point Mm. apart from that initial down he himself felt I've got out of prison Mm. here so he had the girlfriend in Tokyo work had kept his place for him Mm. and that sounds bizarre to kind of go through that but because it was just bang 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 Mm. all the hits so when he left, that was very much kind of like, that's how you do it, let's. Mm. This is easy street. Like, so how long did he get to spend back in Tokyo? I would say it was maybe two months and he phoned very upset because he was out having dinner with friends and he said his arm stopped working. Mm. He knew this isn't right. And um, the panic stations came again going, mm. you know the drill. Come home. Come home. We'll see what's going on. We'll yeah. go on. And especially now that it made more sense because he had a specialist and he, yeah, had, he yeah. knew. He was hooked he, up with all the right people. He kind of knew the drill. But I think he knew something was very wrong. Mm. But he was again afraid of giving up that life because he became ultra. Yeah. Um, Protective of it. Yeah. Going, Look, I am just doing this for you. Mm. I'm sure this is just a, a side effect or something. I'm coming back in two weeks. I am. I will be back here in 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 two weeks. Um, I was like, that's fine. I've just come back. Because we'd been through it before. He was there during the massive earthquake <laughs> and the tidal wave and all this kind of stuff. Wow. And he just kind of assumed that he was... Indestructible yeah, or something. Yeah. A phone call from the parents going, oh, look, can you get in touch with your brother? Something's happened in Tokyo. And you looked at the news and you go, oh, this <laughs> is... This is a big yeah, deal. This is yeah. yeah, this isn't a red weather thing. And then you just kind of got to the stage where you're like, oh, no, this guy is like... He's it's, going, it's going, yeah. he's going to be all right. Yeah. He came back. Yeah, he came back... Again, picked him up at the airport, and that was a completely different. Different, yeah. Like, yeah. like I said, he was he was always thin. Okay. This was this was beyond gone. Yeah. He was limping. Mm. He just wasn't right, mm. and it was a long flight to do. Yeah, mm. he looked terrible, mm. and so the plan was to check him in the next morning. But as soon as he got him up the airport, he just was falling asleep, mm. and so got him up as quickly as possible, and. That became six weeks of absolute hell what was to follow because he was in a room by himself with this mask on. He could barely mm. speak because they didn't have a clue what, mm. what was causing this. They knew something was wrong. They maybe thought it might have been a, a kind of a, a rare flu that had kind of hitchhiked onto the rare mm. leukemia. And I will say that the guy was brilliant, especially was. He is fantastic. He mm. was brilliant. But he was so confident 
that what he has is taken care of that it will always be there but mm. it's just like you take painkillers for a headache mm. that's okay and I'm not going to up dosage or this is what you do mm. for this and what's kind of becomes frustrating is you get kind of fed up with the processes such as if you have a fever you have to take this many things mm. before your fever drops before you can try this well you live your life by the thermometer yeah that's ostensibly what it becomes mm. as well yeah and then it becomes all about the different kind of processes mm. and whatever and we became obsessed with numbers and all this kind of jazz so they really really didn't know what this was until they did a lot of bone marrow tests and even in between the tests things had multiplied up mm. things had multiplied up and that confused them because this shouldn't this shouldn't happen this is multiplied mm. or whatever they were upping dosages um, and they thought look we kind of need to get you onto chemo mm. quickly and that's what they did and that was harsh it was a very very harsh chemo and there was just so many problems came with it like his digestion kind mm. of went and just and we all then were arguing and killing because yeah. like, the three of us became institutionalised mm. with it we were like very much look as soon as five o'clock hits, we go to that hospital mm. and it's the four of us in that room. It becomes your life yeah. entirely. Yeah. And like it actually that. can become very depressing as mm. well because when you go in and out of You don't have any hospital, other... It's just, mm. that is your... That is your life. That yeah. is your day-to-day. That's your norm. Yeah, to the point when there was some days where you just weren't there for various reasons mm. um, for kind of work you couldn't get out of mm. or just stuff you had to do I was in, I was in you know in the same relationship I am now I was that and you kind of think well I just need to do that or whatever and you just kind of feel like oh I don't know what to do with these hours now mm. because that's yeah. when I was mm. and also you're trying to when nurses and doctors want you gone you do have to kind of yeah. leave and then you just become confused because you mm. do become institutionalised quickly going I need to be back mm there you and I talked a little bit about this your brother ended up in the hospice I didn't realise it was the hospice that your grandmother had the same hospice Mm. and a hospice is sort of a whole different environment Mm. a lot of people would say they feel quite lucky that the person that they love got to have a few days or a few weeks in those places because it's very different was that the case for you in terms of that institutionalised thing it sort of is a different environment something very final about a hospice Mm. yeah it's like when you're in the hospice you're sort of I remember yeah. the nurse saying to us, "You know where you are." Like, yeah. I don't think she said it's kind of cold, but she's like, "Look, you don't, you don't get leave. better <laughs> yeah. here because we were still trying, mm. and we were still waiting on medicines to kind mm. of happen." And it got to the point that, well, we didn't leave the hospice the two weeks that Rain was in the hospice. The parents barely left the room. There was a bed that no one was using up on like a third floor I found mm. that I was kind of put my head mm. into and there was another family at the same time that were there and because you're wearing the same clothes mm. we all started to recognise <laughs> I was the black I was the black clothes guy yeah. what was kind of weird about that I always think of that family was they were the exact opposite they were the same numbers but they're the exact opposite of my family like I'll cry anything but, but they were so touchy Feely, kind of, you know, like, oh, granddad passed on the summer solstice. <sighs> he would have liked yeah. that. And like, can yeah. I just ask you for a hug? I'm like, I just make, I just came on, maybe it's four yeah. in the morning. <laughs> I just made myself a cup of tea here. <laughs> but I just remember those family were there for the exact yeah. time. But, but isn't it amazing as well? Like the, the sort of the people you meet or the f- sort of friends you make that sort of stick in your mind mm. that you might normally meet outside mm. of that situation like I still yeah. think 
of when and people you'll always say think of them. when yeah. someone says, "Oh, it's the summer solstice," I think I wonder yeah. what that family is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wonder what that family is but up it's to. It's true. People sort of stick in your mind, or they sort of. And they are people you wouldn't normally meet. No. Like yeah. Summer Solstice guy you'd never have met <laughs> yeah. other than if you hadn't been there. And there's something sort of well, there is something sort of part of, of your nice story. Yeah. yeah. They become so like yeah. those, because those memories are quite well, for for me I felt they were quite vivid. Because I suppose you're completely out of your environment, mm. your normal life. So you can remember those people. There's a girl called Tracy, if she's listening, who I got to know at the hospice when my dad was dying. And like we talk on Facebook all the time. Like mm. and when it's her dad's anniversary, she writes something. When it's my dad, we would like just like that. We'd never mm. have met each other other than in the making tea or well, I used to smoke. So her and I would smoke outside, you know, like that kind of mm. stuff. Those like kind of like moments maybe that stay in your mind. Mm. Are they hard to look back on sometimes when you think about those days in the hospital and in the hospice with Raymond, those final days? Is it difficult now? Well, there was a few images. There was two images in particular. Raymond ended up getting a, a bone marrow transplant or whatever and getting more experimental medicines. And then it, was, it became a rare, it just became worn down. Just everything mm. just became broken over, over the next over the next year. Um there was two images once you knew what way this was going once I kind of realised what, what the, the experimental medicine the second experimental medicine when they kind of said look this is evolving now there was a lab somewhere that said we think this might make a difference okay. on this mm. but they're very rough on the heart but we, look, we have to mm. kind of try them and that was very much if we can get them if we can get them and the next day they got them and they put mm. them on it and you kind of thought you were waiting for that and it didn't have the same effect, but it was doing something. Suppose your brother was so young. So they yeah. were going to try, they were just going to try everything. Yeah. You know, they were just going to tell, like, whatever they could possibly do to save his life, they were probably looking at. And I said, like, we were cocky. We were waiting for the, the Han Solo moment where he kind of came down and he shot Darth Vader and everything was okay. We got kind of cocky that there was something was going to pull us out mm. of this because it was all theoretical it was all kind of experimental that these drugs even though they were rough got him enough to get a bone marrow mm. transplant he got a 10 out of 10 bone mm. marrow transplant and a bone marrow transplant is the most anticlimactic thing of all time you're all kind of sitting around and you're waiting for this hero thing arrive mm. and then the nurse just comes in and goes like oh what's going on in Fair City today <laughs> yeah. and you're all kind of really mm. nervous and silent and you're wondering are you going to explain to us how this works? She was like, yeah. I'm just talking about a bag here. Like, this is yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's he's... like a bl- blood transfusion. Yeah. It's the same. I remember just a month before Martin died, he had a blood transfusion and I was sort of like, oh, you know, it's going to be all big like deal, white yeah. coats everywhere and it's going to be this big sort of dramatic thing. And I walked in and he was like, hi, how's it going? <laughs> yeah. yeah. up to the yeah. bag and I was sort of like, oh, what time do they do the blood transfusion? And he was just like, <laughs> now. this is it. <laughs> I was like, oh, Okay. Mm. I thought it was going to be this big spectacular thing. <laughs> yeah, but it's not. There's so many anti-climactic yeah, yeah. moments where yeah, you're kind yeah. of waiting for those big yeah. you're waiting oh, for those yeah. big moments and it just becomes the really rough times become mm. has the kind of like the, the kind of the hope bits. But when things weren't getting fixed and it was a Christmas Eve when they were really wanting to see things getting better. They really, really wanted things to get better. And that wasn't kind of happening and they're very kind of open about it they said look we'll know by the blood tests tomorrow if it's, it's if something's going to happen or not and then it was well what happens if it's not happening they said well you're talking two weeks so you went in on Christmas day and you mean not that you cared that it was Christmas day it's so mm. much more important kind of stuff going on and this is the kind of the weird thing that you don't think any moment is lower than that 
But then you go in the next day preparing for nothing, and then that doesn't come because you don't get good news, but you don't get bad news. Mm. You just get news. <laughs> and that's something that I don't think anyone gets used to. And what Raymer's gone through, I couldn't say, but what you kind of get really hit by is the constant just Blandness. M- it's limbo. murmur. Yeah. Where they kind of go, yeah. we'll know tomorrow, and you think, yeah. we'll know tomorrow. And then it comes in and goes, oh, it's not as bad as we thought. That's not as good as we thought yeah. either. And then that became that for the next Yeah. Months. I remember somebody saying to me, and I sort of get with it at the time, I was like, how can they say that? But it was like her husband did something similar to Martin and it was, you know, the prognosis wasn't good. And then they got the all clear. And it was like, we've just built ourselves up to this, like, yeah. you know, it's stage four, it's not looking good, blah, blah, blah. And then the all clear. And we had a similar brief moment where it looked like they might be able to do something. And I remember Ring Martin's going like, they seem to think they could do something. And he was like, well, that's the first time. Are you sure? And I was like, yeah. And it was almost like this where you think you should be shouting it from the rooftops. But because you've been so conditioned to mm. waiting for maybe bad news or you're just in the throes of it, it's like, well, what do we do now if you do get the old clear? It's like, what mm. do you know that way? And yeah. it sounds awful. But that's the way it feels. Oh, you stop trusting the ups, but you also stop trusting the downs yeah. as well. And like you said, you're afraid to tell anyone mm. to anything because the amount of times we've had to say to people, this yeah. isn't looking good. And then it was very much, we'll look at this again next week. Yeah. And like I said, it just wears everybody down. You know, you're all constantly waiting on the bloods to come and then you even stopped paying attention yeah. to them because it, it didn't kind of make sense. But... It would go well enough that he'd become an outpatient again. Mm. And then he became an outpatient. And we kind of had this kind of thing that he was going in every Wednesday. And if he was ever told, oh, you're doing great, don't come back for two weeks, we knew something was going to go wrong. Because mm. something was all like a temperature would mm. hit yeah. or whatever. It, eventually, he was sent home post a bone marrow transplant. And even though the bloods weren't doing as well as they want, what you were really looking for was pain. Mm. If there was something, a pain in the arm or something, something that the bone marrow was yeah. acting up or whatever. And I remember there was one that he was in absolute pain in the hole. He was just an absolute bollocks. Mm. And he was a bollocks to the mother and all this kind of stuff. And I kind of thought, myself, I'm going to yeah, have yeah. a war with him yeah, to yeah, say, yeah, look, yeah. I know you've yeah, had yeah. a shit time, but you can't do that. And I, I always remember I, I was walking behind him and I seen that he had a limp. And I realised, oh, he knows he has a limp that's bad and then the next day he said my legs sore and he broke down crying mm. he was told post bone marrow transplants you don't get another chance mm. if you mm. if this it comes back they had got the theory that it was evolving that every time it was being hit it mm. might evolve so if it comes back again and so what happened was it had come back a third well it never really gone away but it attacked a third time to the point where no lab knew what this was mm. no one had seen what this was before but there was just that feeling that bad news was kind of coming mm. and I took the day off work and I said to my mother that day because she was just absolutely tired and I said to my father I was like look I just have a bad feeling about today and I think if something's going to happen today mm. I want to be her he'll have you yeah. or whatever and he foamed me and said we're coming home mm. because we've been told there's nothing yeah. to do and I didn't know what to do then because I was like, what do I say to my mm. mother? Yeah. Because Raymond wanted to tell her himself. But how do I 
yeah, yeah. manage this in between time. Yeah, that's this. hard. And it was only two hours. That's very hard, though. I went on the massive tension there. You asked about images and two images in particular that I couldn't deal with. And one of them happened that day it was after that phone call. And I seen my mother mm. um, having just realized what was going to happen. Mm. And she let out a squeal, like a, a yelp that I'd never heard before. Mm. We're very funny. We're always joking with each other, slagging each other. But if there was ever a hug, something was very, very bad. And she just kind of grabbed me. Mm. And was, at the time, you just think, I need to be there for them. But it was only kind of after him passed that, that image, I just could not get that. Mm. I could not mm. get that, that sound and that image image yeah. out of my head. Every time I was trying to sleep, I was seeing that image. It's um, um I've, I was only reading about this yesterday that the doctors and nurses said that when a mother receives the news that she her child is going to pass away mm. or has passed away, that it's always like a very similar sound because it's the worst possible scenario. scenario. Mm. And obviously when you've given birth to a child, like that connection, you know. Mm. Um, but did you find that then because you were holding it together for people that you had to delay dealing with this for yourself until later? I didn't realize at all that was going to be such a problem because I thought to myself, look, whatever is happening to me mm. is secondary to mm. what's happening here. Yeah. I'm last on the list. You know, that day when he passed in the hospice, um, all the kind of real life kind of stuff started kind of uh, coming into like there was mm. family members not on him who were turning up who weren't kind of behaving themselves, whatever. And you have to tell mm. them, but just mm. off, like, mm. you know, it was the three of us and some friends of his that came in who were great crack. And people from Japan had came over and oh. all this kind of stuff which was nice. And Raymond's lucidity had kind of gone for the last couple mm. of weeks. He would sometimes chat, but you were at a waiting process at this mm. point. And I started thinking to myself, I'll deal with that later on. I've got two people here that need me, that I need to just mm. make sure that they're going to be okay. Okay. And the father, he's, you know, he will, he'll end up, when death comes for him, he'll end up shouting at death going, you know, I've done this a half hour ago. Would you come on, would you come on? Like, yeah. you know, I knew he was going to be okay because he was breaking down, crying and mm. shouting and punching things mm. and whatever. And it was a psychologist in the hospice kind of called me over and said, look, I need to talk to you about someone. I was like, look, I'll tell him to calm down. Like, Let him on. Let He's him actually on. on the right track He's there doing right. that, yeah. It's your mother. Mm. And I was like, mm. yeah, she became so silent. And I, she hasn't kind of shook that. We were kept on being told this is going to happen today. And it kind of mirrored the whole process. And then mm, it, 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 it didn't. didn't. It didn't. We were told, this is going to happen today. Oh, it's didn't. the worst. Mm. I was like, this is going to happen in the next hour. Mm. And then the nurse was like, oh, no, he's actually gone way, way up. Mm. It's sort of horrendous, isn't it? Because yeah. you're sitting there waiting for the inevitable. But then it doesn't happen. And you're sort of almost feeling guilty. Not that you're wishing it would happen sooner. And you're scared to leave yeah. as well. There were other people outside kind yeah. of who were waiting. Every time you'd leave the room, they would go white in the face. But you're just leaving the room to go to the loo. To the bathroom. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. Oh no, he's he's great. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'd been there mm. for, for two and a half weeks mm. in the same clothes. Yeah. And then when it actually happened You weren't there. I wasn't. Mm. Same thing happened to me with yeah. my granny, she's at the hospice in Harold's Cross. And I was there the whole time. Because I was sort of with her and I went, my dad arrived and I went across the road for something to eat just to have a break because his brother had arrived and that's mm. when she died. Mm. Despite all the mm. in and out of Vincent's and everything. 
But I think I think sometimes they do that to spare you. Mm. That's what yeah. someone said. The nurse said to me that mm. that he just didn't want you yeah. around or whatever. I'm like, he definitely didn't want me around. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. but like, he didn't mind that last two weeks. Yeah. I, I asked this question, and feel free not to answer it, but I think a lot of people do feel guilty if they weren't in the room. Mm. Um, they and, and unnecessarily so because you cannot possibly plan or predict those moments. But do you carry any kind of? Yeah, big time. Absolutely huge that I wasn't there for the final mm. bit. I've been told as soon as I was near the room, this has just happened. And I was like, okay. Um, and when I walked in, the second image I couldn't shake then was um, his mouth wouldn't shut. And my mm. father was trying to close it. Mm. Um, and he just kept on trying but he wasn't there Mm. but Andy I think that's a really hard thing to share but in my experience that has happened the two people that I was with when they died the exact same thing happened and I I wish I'd known I wish someone had said to me their mouth might be open Mm. and it might look kind of scary and Mm. it might stay with you so being able to talk about those things or say those things out loud like you're you're going to help somebody else someday and they might not even know why Mm. and they might be in that situation they might think I heard about this before Mm. I, I don't have to be as afraid so you know thank you for sharing something kind of as intimate as that because those are the things people don't talk that people I thought my dad was wearing white gloves I said who put the white gloves on him yeah and they were just that his hands had gone white but I thought he I genuinely thought he was wearing like Michael Jackson gloves Mm. Mm. and I was like what is this part of death I don't understand (laughs) this you know and like and now if I were to talk to a friend Mm. and say you know oh it's okay that's part of you know it's so those are the little things that are hard as they are to share will help someone or maybe someone else listening who struggles with that memory too. So I do thank you for sharing that with us because it's not an easy one to talk about. How did you find living with grief and living without Raymond now that you're a few years down the line? It's from everything we've talked about here. It doesn't Mm. get easier. It changes. What's it been like for you now living these few years down the line without him? Uh, Time has kind of just made no sense. I'd mentioned it before that he died during the World Cup, 2014, the World Cup. And it was a Birmingham hot summer in, in the hospice. And... You're just constantly awaiting first birthdays, first Christmases, first whatever. But during the World Cup, I was thinking, because this is four years, it's going to complain that the World Cup will be back on and that'll be four years later. But how can there be a four years after this? Mm. How can how yeah. can anything yeah. kind of happen? Mm. And sure enough, the World Cup rolled around last year and it was as worse as any mm. of those firsts. It was a benchmark. Mm. Yeah, because I wasn't okay. Mm. I went to grief counselling and I'm sure he was a great guy. It just didn't work yeah. for me. I did the prescribed mm, amount of sessions. Of course, yeah. And he had me talking to empty chairs or whatever. And I'm sure it's brilliant for some people. But I went into that thinking, I'm going to do this. I didn't want to become a booze hound. I didn't want to yeah. drink my way through it out, mm. out of this because I was like, I've got two people here. I need to make proud or whatever mm. and just make sure they're okay. And we started doing charity events and all this stuff named like Night Foray and everything like that and the first year was making sure every first anniversary every birthday everything mm. that I need to look after two of them mm. or whatever and counselling but I was getting absolutely hammered mm. throughout it and I think because I was a fun drunk mm. yeah. that no one was picking it up no one was saying, oh, this is linked to that. And because there was enough kind of time and I'd made a big point over, I'm fine. Like, mm. look, this is the thing. Mm. But I was caning it. Mm. Uh, but it was always good times. 
it was never. But is that not just the escapism of getting a little bit pissed so you don't really have to think about mm. what's it, going on? Really, it's yeah. The next day, or it's when you come home, that then it's like, oh. Now it's looking back of it. I wonder how I got away with it mm. for so long. I remember one Sunday morning. I was lying in bed and um, I put on a record and between the hangover and what was going on in the head, I just started bawling. Oh. And I remember my girlfriend saying, would you ever not listen to Damien Rice? I mean, yeah. you could just change <laughs> yeah, the record, yeah. you know? But you don't want to. It's almost <laughs> like, like you're yeah, making yourself. Yeah. That's, you know, and it's yeah. sort of, you sort of go, there's one U2 song that... It's only a short song, but it's just like, why do you have it on your running playlist? Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, but I think it's because I know that that's my time. If I need to get it out, it'll come out then. And that's the time you have, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, like, when you're in bed having your coffee, when you're hungover in the comfort of your own home and you put on your favourite record, at least, you know, it's all going to come out behind your four walls. Yeah. So you're not going to be in Tesco and burst mm. into tears. Like, you're sort of safe. Safe space, Yeah. yeah. I think. Yeah, that was my kind of allotted. Like you torture yourself just to get it out. <laughs> yeah, that was my. Yeah. That was my allotted time, and the drinking just got really worse. Yeah. To the point when this was a few years kind of after I started drinking by myself then, which is very unlike me, and I was always looking for a, yeah. a party, and I had started getting banned out of certain places because I was just kind of hammered, and that was very unlike me. Yeah. For that to become yeah an issue, um, and I don't even remember going out, or whatever, but I woke up outside of Trinity College, um, and I was being helped onto a wall by some nice guy, and it was raining, and leg it was kind of bleeding, and my wallet was gone, my phone was mm-hmm. gone. Uh, I just thought to myself, well, look, I can't do this anymore mm-hmm. because I didn't want my mother getting another phone call. I didn't want yeah. my mother. Anything. I didn't want her doing this again. Again, so I just immediately kind of quit. I've never touched a drink since then. Wow! But the sleeping became impossible. Mm. I was getting panic attacks in my sleep. I kept on waking up thinking I was dead. Mm. I wake up and my heart was beating constantly, and I would assume that around me was some kind of afterlife or something mm. until you realise hold on a second you're in this room mm. that's that but you'd be knackered because you're just getting panic attacks three times mm. a week at least while trying to sleep mm. you'd be getting night terrors then I'd be banging down doors or whatever and that became because I wasn't blacking out that I wasn't letting that mm. devil out of me mm. which is why I got uh, hypnotism to help that which was amazing so do you feel like you're in a healthier place now? Yeah, I do. But it's strange because it's coming up to the summertime now that I've started feeling a little bit mm, weird yeah. and little sleep patterns are coming back in. One thing the hypnotism did was it, it, it helped me with those two images. Um, just to, They're always little. there and I can think about them mm-hmm. and I can talk about them. But they're not yeah. haunting me as I try to sleep. Mm. It's strange, like my parents are in a better place which is good his mates still come over and visit them which is nice and they started going to more shows and stuff like that mm. they wouldn't necessarily do that before and there was a point afterwards where I remember it's like I said to my father do you want to go to this do you like him and he was like how can I do that when I've got my son in the ground he said how can I have some fun when my son's in the ground and I was like okay well fuck that's perfectly fine but now we kind of um, go to 
things. Mm. And I'm not sure where that came out of because I don't know what they did. I know they didn't get drunk and banned out of the workman's <laughs> club. Um, yeah. My mother's a, not that you know of. Yeah, my mother's a dark horse. <laughs> um, but I don't know what they did. Mm. But they're obviously not bad. They're mm. stronger than I am. And uh, but everybody maybe, deals yeah. with it in different yeah. ways. And I think also if your your main concern was them, so you were looking after them first. So you were burying mm. a lot of stuff. And I think sometimes when you're looking after whether it's kids or your parents or whatever it is that's coming first then you come second so ultimately it's going to either hit later or hit in a different way or mm. you know and it's like that escapism thing we were talking about earlier as well I can see why people hit the bottle mm, I totally. totally get it yeah one of the things we talk a lot about is like the it's not crying in your bedroom it's not it doesn't always look that way sometimes you and I also think it's really great to say sometimes you're having a really good time too yeah because you're a bit turbo and you're a bit yeah. you're a bit manic on drinking and stuff and you're having this kind of like great time and that's another red flag a lot of people don't necessarily realize it's a red flag um, so thank you so much for sharing your story with us thank you for sharing the hard parts and the mm. darker parts too because that's the stuff that really helps mm. people so thanks for coming thank on you. thank you thank and you and you're doing great by the way catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.